Our, our neighborhoods, in fact, are oftentimes not places of peace and tranquility. Recently, there was an incident in my neighborhood where some high school students vandalized some homes and they hurled uh, racial slurs at some people in our neighborhood. And if that were not bad enough in and of itself, the, the victims uh, and, and the father of the accused lobbed verbal assaults at one another on the public uh, community message board. And there is no peace, even in Cary, North Carolina. Our homes, in fact, should be places of peace, and yet there are many of you that arrived here this morning and you come from homes. There are people in our community this morning that are in homes that could be described as anything but peaceful. Parents, moms and dads in conflict with one another, kids in conflict with their parents. There is no peace. And so I would ask you the question this morning, uh, this one week almost before Christmas, why do these things happen? No doubt you asked yourself that question on Friday, and maybe you ask yourself on a regular basis. You hear, as my grandmother used to say, I can hear her say it now, what is this world coming to? Why is this world the way that it is? I, I would submit to you this morning that the reason we have no peace is because we have sin in this world. In fact, one commentator said it this way, as long as there is evil, there will be war between good and evil. The Apostle Paul made it very clear, in fact, in his uh, letter to that young pastor named Timothy, if you have your Bible, you can turn there if you'd like, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, when he wrote to that young pastor, talking about what the end would be like. And he wrote this, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unlovable, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, which by the way, interesting as you read this passage, sometimes we read those first verses and we go, well, I'm thankful that's not me. Because I would not, malicious gossip, that's not me. And murder, I, I would never do those things. Love money, no, I want to give it away. I think it's interesting that as Paul writes to this young pastor, he writes in verse 5 then, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied the power. You know who I think he's writing to there? <laughs> he's saying there are people, young Timothy, young pastor, that are right there in our churches that claim to be godly people and yet they deny the very power by the way that they live their lives because their lives too are characterized by some of these things. You see, we long for peace in this world and in our personal lives. And the pressing question which most people in our world ask is this, where does that peace come from? In fact, the question is asked in a modern uh, day uh, Christmas song. The song, a portion of the song goes like this. As children, we believed that the grandest sight to see was something lovely wrapped beneath our tree. I can remember when I was there, right? Remember parents, old people? Do you remember? I mean, when Christmas was really cool because, you know, you were waiting to get something under a tree and now you got to put the stuff under the tree and it just isn't as exciting as it used to be, right? Yeah. You used to wait for the, big red, for the big guy to come in the big red suit. Now you are the big guy in the red suit, right? 
The song goes out to say, well, heaven surely knows that packages and bows can never heal a hurting human soul. The songwriter goes on to write, no more lives torn apart, that wars would never start, and time would heal all hearts, and everyone would have a friend, and right would always win, and love would never end. That's my grown-up Christmas list. Now, normally at this particular time of the year, and I'm, believe me, I'm sensitive to that, and we will uh, certainly focus on those things on Christmas Eve, but normally on Christmas, uh, at this particular time, when, when you hear a guy that gets up and he opens up the Word of God, he opens up to one of those classic uh, Christmas passages. We normally focus on the manger scene. And that's because without the birth of the Savior, uh, a birth of Jesus, and ultimately his sacrifice for our sin on the cross, we would be hopeless. And so we usually go to passages like uh, Luke uh, chapter 2. And we talk about the young teenage couple, Mary and Joseph, and we remember their journey to Bethlehem to register for the census. And we remember that when they got there, there was no place for them to stay. And so uh, they ended up uh, staying in, a, in, in an old barn. And, and the Son of God that night was born in a feeding trough for animals. That was the birthplace of the Savior of the world. But if you look at that passage there in Luke chapter 2, very often, we don't often focus on the words of the angels. In fact, if we do, maybe it's at a, at a Christmas play at your child's school where your child was an angel, at least for that particular moment. They came out there in their white sheet and their glistening wings and they began to shout out what the angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. But rarely do we focus at Christmas time on that word peace. That's what we want. That's what we need. And so often we skip right over that. And yet 2,000 years after those angels proclaimed that, we still long for peace. We long for it in our country. We long for it in our neighborhoods. We long for it in our homes. We long for it in our churches. Ultimately, we long for it personally in our hearts understand true peace. The Jewish people have been looking for peace for thousands of years. If you're a, stu a student of Jewish history, in fact, you really don't even have to be a, a student of Jewish history, you, you know that, that that's true. In Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to a man named Abraham, you'll recall, and he, he said that he made it very clear to Abraham that out of him he was going to make a great nation. What an incredible statement to a man that didn't have any children, right? And was approaching the age at which that wasn't going to be possible. But eventually, you know the story of, of Abraham and his wife. They, they had a son, and the nation of Israel was born. And Israel's history, by the way, has been marked by rebellion against God from the beginning. There have been times of obedience, and then that obedience leading to blessing but the historical record is very consistent. It is a story of rebellion. And it's very interesting to me how as, uh, even as Christ followers, we're so apt to point to the nation of Israel and their failings in Scripture and their rejection of the Messiah. But just as Israel's history is, is marked by uh, people being, uh, living in rebellion against God, so is the larger history of mankind. I'm convinced of that. 
Today, I, I believe that, that the events that we see happening in our country are a direct result, they are direct consequences of us turning our backs on the one who came to give us life. The one who came ultimately to give us peace on earth. And I would say to you this morning that lasting peace is never going to be found outside of a relationship with Jesus. And just like in our day today, in the year uh, 2012, uh, their world was anything but peaceful. You'll remember, in fact, we talk on a regular basis here within the context of our, of our studies about uh, that particular time that the Jewish people were living under the oppression of the Romans. There were social injustices. There were economic issues. Life was hard. And no doubt they longed for the Messiah that Isaiah had promised so long ago that they were familiar with as they went to the temple. They'd heard the priest read about this, this Messiah that would come and would save them. And they saw him, as we've said so often, as a savior from their temporary problems rather than a savior from their debt of sin. Isn't that, doesn't that sound eerily familiar to what our culture longs for? We long to name the name of Jesus in times of turmoil, in times of discomfort. It's amazing how quick we are to call for prayer, how quick we are to gather at a church during those times of difficulty, during those times of oppression, because it's at that time that we want to claim the name of Jesus. It is at that time that we want a Savior. One of the major themes that runs through the book of Isaiah, and if you have your Bible turned there, we're going to spend the rest of our time there this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. One of the major themes that runs through the book of Isaiah is that the Messiah would come. And the message actually is, is fairly simple. It's not really uh, that complicated. God won't forget you. In this land of your turmoil and your despair, God, God's going to send a deliverer to you. Deliverer to you. He's going he's to send you a savior. And then in chapter 9, he gives us a great description of this Messiah that would come on that first Christmas 2,000 years ago. And I want to focus our time here just briefly this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. Look with me there in verse 1. Isaiah writes, but there will be no more gloom for her. If you were to read back at the ending verses of chapter 8, you would see the context of which he's coming from. In a, in a world where there's turmoil, where there's despair, there's going to be no more gloom for her who, has, who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of the Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in dark darkness, which figuratively for us this morning, that's us. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be, will be for burning fuel for the fire. The Lord basically is promising them through Isaiah the prophet, he's, pro, he's promising them a redeemer. 
And Isaiah is continuing the theme of light and darkness that he talked about in verses 20 to 22 in chapter 8 by announcing that there's going to be no more gloom. The Redeemer is going to come and he's going to come into the world and it's going to be the dawning of a new day. And we know this prophecy, by the way, refers to Christ because of the way it's quoted again in Matthew chapter 4. But the prophet looks beyond, Isaiah looks beyond the first coming of Christ to the second coming and the establishing of his righteous kingdom. And instead of protecting just a small remnant, God's going to enlarge the nation. And instead of experiencing sorrow, the people are going to see great joy again. And of course, some of this occurred when God defeated Assyria and then delivered Jerusalem. If you were to go ahead to chapter 37 of Isaiah, you would see that. But the ultimate fulfillment is still future. All military material is going to be destroyed, verse 5, because the nations will not learn war anymore. But verse 6 is where we want to focus. For a child will be born to us. Imagine if you're living back in those days and you're in turmoil and you're looking for this, for this savior of the world. How, how do you expect the savior to come? How would you want him to come? If you had a need, let's say you were, you were playing basketball, a, a game of pickup basketball, and you were, you were short a guy and you were looking at the other five guys on this side and the four of you... And you're looking at them going, I don't know that we're going to. And they said, hey, a little kid's going to come and he'll be your fifth guy. Wouldn't bring much confidence, would it? I mean, you'd want to. Shaquille O'Neal is in town. He's coming to be your fifth man. Yes, we're going to be able to take him. This is where the people of Israel are right now. And the prophet Isaiah says, hey, good news. There's going to be a day that's coming and everything's going to be made all right. And everything's for unto you. A child is born. Child. Child. I mean, we wanted a, a, a king, strong, muscular, like that, like that Samson dude we read about back in those early. Yeah, that guy. Guy like that on a white horse. We're looking for somebody like him, not a child. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. And so, uh, therefore, uh, husbands, when you say, I just can't live with that woman. I can't live at peace. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you're in Christ, you can. And ladies, those of you who say, I can't stand it anymore. It's impossible. He's impossible. Oh, no, you can in fact, if you say you can't, what you're really saying is, I have no ability inside of me, which means the Holy Spirit of God is not indwelling you. Think about what you're saying, okay? So next time you sit with me in my office or at a coffee shop and you tell me, I just can't, then imagine what my rebuttal might be to you. That may be because the Spirit of God is not ruling in your life, thereby giving you the ability to be able to do something that we don't naturally possess in our life. That's the benefit of living in the Spirit, of having the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. And so Galatians 5, and 23, where we read about the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love and joy and peace, long-suffering and gentleness and all. And you go, I can't do it. And you go, you're right, you can't do it. But if the Prince of Peace is indwelling you, 
by virtue of a relationship with Jesus Christ who then gives us the spirit of God to indwell our lives, to infuse us with the ability to be able to live outside of our ability as a human being, we can do it. And all those things are reflections of his presence in us. And although their deepest, most vital result is to have us live in love, joy, and peace with God, they can't help but spill over in our relationship with other people, right? When we live like that, when we behave that way, when we have that kind of peace with God because the Spirit of God is indwelling us, and we desperately need it, especially since God calls us to passionately live that way with singleness of purpose, with other believers, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ironically, the, the simplest definition of peace is that of the appearance of tranquility in a person, the absence of hostility, and the absence of mental stress or anxiety. Wow. Well, I could have used a dose of that this week. Couldn't you? I was finishing up last night and I wrote that down and I thought, wow, is that really the definition? In fact, I had to go back and check. Is that really what that means? And that's what I have, the ability to be able to have. Have you ever met somebody that you really believe just has this calmness, this peace, that their life is saturated with it? The appearance of tranquility in a person, the absence of hostility, the absence of mental stress or anxiety. And I believe that that can be the most difficult to grasp and to maintain, even though it's the simplest definition. You see, we don't do anything to acquire peace with God, right? It's the Spirit of God that draws us to himself and we come into relationship with our Creator. And God says, as part of the new deal, as part of the new agreement, you have peace with me, right? No longer battle. Your sin that separated you from me, I've removed that, and now we're at peace. Awesome. Profoundly confusing why the God of the universe would do that, but it's awesome, right? You see, I don't have to do anything to get that peace, but the other kind of peace takes a lot of work. And peace doesn't come easy. In fact, Jesus never promised that it would be easy. He only promised help. In fact, he told us in John 16 and in the book of James that to expect tribulation, to expect trials, but he said if, if we call upon him, that he will give us the peace of God which passes all comprehension. That's why I love those verses in Proverbs that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do what? Don't lean on your own understanding. Do you find yourself ever doing that? I do. I lean on my own understanding a lot. And by the way, not because I think I'm really that smart. Because just a lot of times I forget the power that I have that's available to me. But the writer in Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. That peace of God which passes all comprehension. Philippians says, and Paul said in, in Philippians 4.7, the peace of God which passes all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, in fact, sometimes when you get in those situations where 
you have a peace that, that, that you can't comprehend, that you can't understand. That is one of the most affirming things about have a, having a personal, vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? When you get there and you have that kind of peace and you say, I don't understand it, I can't comprehend why, I just have this kind of peace, that's what Paul's talking about. There's no comprehension. There's no ability to be able to even understand why that's there. I watched with interest last night on CNN as uh, they broadcast an interview, one of the first actually, with the parents of little Emily Parker, six years old, who was tragically gunned down on Friday. And I listened to this man testify about his strong faith in a God that's good, a God that doesn't make mistakes. I don't know if Robbie is a follower of Jesus Christ, but he certainly possessed last night that peace that passes all understanding. Because the Prince of Peace has come. You know, no matter what hardships we're faced with, we can ask for a peace that comes from the powerful love of God that is not dependent upon our own strength or any situation around us. Here's what most of us do. Most people take the approach of coping rather than seeking true peace. In fact, I was amazed at one of the last news stories that I watched last night was with a lady and her son, and the news reporter said, how will you cope with this? What will you do? And she said, well, we'll just, we'll just gather together and we'll support one another and somehow we'll just make it through this. And I thought, how sad. How sad. Yet that's typically our approach to the turmoil, to the disappointment of life. Just simply to cope rather than seeking true peace. We assume that peace will come from the comfort of friends or, or family members. And we have a tendency to seek peace on our own rather than Jesus. And here's the truth. Bottom line, the newspapers won't tell you this. The evening news is not going to give it to you. But guess what? Because you're here this morning, I'm going to give it to you. Here's the big idea this morning. If you walk away with nothing else, make sure you get this today. We will never know peace until we know the Prince of Peace. And I believe that ultimately that's how we make sense of it all. To know that as we read at the beginning this morning in Revelation 21, that eventually the Prince of Peace, the creator, the sustainer of life, that ultimately he is the one that makes all things good, that makes all things new, that makes all things right. And unless you know him, you will never, ever, ever understand true peace. There will be moments of calm and tranquility in your life, but you will never, ever, ever have lasting peace in your life until you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the great news of Christmas, that we can know the Prince of Peace. You see, that's what the incarnation is all about. It's about God coming to live amongst us, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That's the incarnation. That's God becoming man. Why did he do it that way? I don't know. I wouldn't have done that. 
just for the record. If I'm God, I come down with the white horses, the golden chariot, and I am the big dude on the white horse, and I'm coming to save the day for everybody because I'm God. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm glad you're not, but you'd do the same thing. You wouldn't come as a little baby in a manger, in a stable. That's what he did. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And don't forget it during these tumultuous days that you and I live in. The Prince of Peace. I close this morning with that priestly blessing that we find in Numbers chapter 6. I love these verses so much. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Father, I'm thankful this morning that you do things your way and not my way. Thankful that as we sang earlier that you are the saving one. God, I'm thankful that you came to this earth as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. But God, during these days, I'm so thankful that you are the prince of peace. And not just simply peace in a nation, peace in a neighborhood, peace in a home, but peace in our hearts. A peace that comes when we're properly aligned with you because our sin debt has been paid. We've been reconciled to God. We're no longer dead men walking, but we're alive in Christ. A peace that comes because we know that eternity is in the hand of the one that we trust. A peace that comes because we know that no matter what happens in our lives personally, in the life of our family, of our community, of our nation, that you hold all of those things in your hand. And as a result of that, God, it does bring peace. A peace that passes all understanding. And God, so many times at this season of the year, we focus on all of those other things which are certainly incredibly awesome. And we fail to see you as the Prince of Peace. But God, I'm so thankful today that you're that. I'm thankful that I can experience that in my own personal life through the 
tumultuous, difficult days when anxiety uh, would, would, would seek to rule in my life that there can be peace that's there. Because I've been reconciled to you, I have the Spirit of God indwelling me, and I have the ability to know that all things ultimately work together for good and for your glory. And God, I would pray for folks that are here this morning that are out of fellowship with you and so therefore do not live in peace. God, I pray that they would rightly align themselves once again with their Savior, with their Lord. Father, for others who have never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, they've wandered, they've run away, they've heard the gospel and yet they've resisted it. God, help them to understand that in order to have peace with God, it begins with the relationship that they were created to have. And God, I pray that as we leave this place here in just a few moments, that we as Christ followers will go from this place and, and we will live based upon the truth that the Prince of Peace rules our hearts. That the Prince of Peace gives us the ability to be able to have peace because the Spirit of God is indwelling us today. And I pray we will live that way so that others might ask us of the hope that is in us and we'll have the ability to be able to testify to the goodness of God as the Prince of Peace in our lives. In whose name we pray, amen.